Welcome back to Breathtaking. As I mentioned last week, Jewish people the world over are in the midst of a sorrowful three weeks commemorating the tragic destruction of Jerusalem's holy temples. The final nine days of those three weeks are ones in which I don't listen to music. And so, as promised last week, today's podcast will be thought-provoking, engaging, but devoid of music. It just happens that the 32nd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act was just commemorated on July 26th. And so I'd like to share with you an excerpt from my memoir, A Life Not With Standing, an excerpt exploring stigma. I grew up proud to be a polio survivor, blissfully unaware of the stigma many people attach to paralysis and deformity. I grew up proud to be a Jew, blissfully unaware of the stigma many people attach to my faith. I grew up proud to be a girl, blissfully unaware of the stigma many people attach to my gender. It was only later, on the cusp of adulthood, that on all three fronts, I was rudely awakened. Against my will, I became a warrior, and nowhere did the battle rage more fiercely than at the intersection where all three identities converged, the dating front. I had battled exclusion before. I always won. The movie theater, the restaurant, the concert hall, the university, the world of work. They had dispensed my basic training. This time, the barricades wouldn't budge. When it came to marriage, so central to my Orthodox Jewish upbringing, I seemed destined to remain on the sidelines forever. With every passing year, I searched more and more frantically for someone, anyone, who believed, as I did, that I would marry. It's not that my parents didn't believe it. When I asked, they assured me that they did. But I didn't want to ask. I wanted their words to reach me unbidden. I wanted to hear unshakable conviction, even righteous indignation in their voices. I didn't. One day, I heard a lilting song about Vincent van Gogh on the radio. It became a life preserver. The chorus went, Now I understand what you tried to say to me, and how you suffered for your sanity, and how you tried to set them free. They would not listen. They did not know how. Perhaps they'll listen now. Surely I couldn't be the only sane one in my world, and if I were, I refused to believe that the world expected me to embrace its insanity. I often found myself humming a strident, long-forgotten folk song I had known since childhood. I don't want to get adjusted to this world. 
If being well-adjusted meant adjusting to society's maladjusted view of life with a disability, I'd stay maladjusted. Thank you very much. Happily, a paperback book on a family friend's living room shelf enabled me to do just that. It had almost escaped my notice. That's how slender it was. But like candy, its spines, graphic design, pink and orange against a black background, caught my eye and whetted my appetite. Equally diminutive was its title, Stigma. But its author, sociologist Irving Goffman, was an intellectual giant. Stigma, a little word whose meaning I did not know. Goffman wasted no time enlightening me. Stigma is an attribute that is deeply discrediting, reducing the bearer from a whole and usual person to a tainted, discounted one. Goffman postulated that a stigmatized individual may consider himself normal, a human being, like everyone else. At the same time, he may detect, and not without reason, that others do not accept him. And the kicker? As a product of the same society whose members stigmatize him, the stigmatized person subscribes to many of its attitudes, making him, quote, intimately alive to what others see as his failing, inevitably causing him, if only for moments, to agree that he does indeed fall short of what he really ought to be, unquote. Time and again, I saw myself in Stigma's pages, never more cathartically than in Goffman's excerpts from The Little Locksmith, the 1943 memoir by Catherine Butler Hathaway, with whose scoliosis I thoroughly identified. She wrote, quote, When I got up at last and had learned to walk again, one day I took a hand glass and went to a long mirror to look at myself. That person in the mirror couldn't be me. I felt inside like a healthy, ordinary, lucky person. Oh, not like the one back in the mirror. Unquote. The discrepancy between Hathaway's body image and her mirror's reflection reminded me of my left thumb. Polio had short-circuited the motor nerves I needed to oppose my thumbs. I know that now, over half a century later, but I didn't know it as a seven-year-old. Surely I must have seen what everybody else could see, that my thumbs lay limply alongside my palms. All I can say is that my eyes saw it, but I didn't. Then came my first surgery. Known as an opponent's transplant, it was rather ingenious. A muscle was to be removed from my left ring finger, deemed the hand's least active player, and transplanted into my wilted left thumb. 
Several months after that operation took place, it became clear that something had gone wrong. My thumb was in a permanently extended position, looking twice as long as it used to be, unable to return to the home base that it used to occupy. My doctor had offered to reoperate. My parents said it was up to me. I wouldn't hear of it. And it's a good thing, too. That elongated left thumb became indispensable. Without it, I would never have been able to brush my teeth, bring a cup or eating utensil to my mouth, or scratch my nose. No one taught me how, but by throwing my right elbow into my left palm, I transformed that botched thumb into a lever, a workhorse that lifts and lowers my right forearm to this day. Pull away that lever and the palm attached to it, and my right hand splats like a water-filled balloon. But as proud as I was of the tricks I had taught it, I learned soon enough that my left thumb was an eyesore. Kids' comments abounded. What happened to your thumb? Why is your thumb so long? Your thumb looks weird. It looked and felt normal to me, but every now and then I'd spot my left thumb in a photograph and even I would be repulsed. And it wasn't just one thumb. It wasn't just one finger. My hands, all my fingers, even after corrective surgery. Scorpions. The discrepancy between Catherine Butler Hathaway's body image and her mirror's reflection also reminded me of the time when I was a college student when my cousin Avrumi took me to a New York Knicks game at Madison Square Garden. After the game, we were waiting outside for my taxi to arrive. Traffic was horrendous, and at least 15 minutes went by, and still no cab. Then all of a sudden, I saw Avrumi lifting a wheelchair into the trunk of a yellow taxi. No, I called out to him in alarm. The car we're expecting is dark blue. Bewildered, Avrumi turned to me, the wheelchair in midair. He said, but this is not your wheelchair. Equally bewildered, I looked down. Avrumi couldn't have been lifting my wheelchair. I was still sitting in it. Reading Stigma at age 20 clarified why, unless society holds its mirror up to my face, I often have no idea that I am sitting in a wheelchair. It's almost as if the chair is so much a part of me that I don't even know it's there. That night waiting outside Madison Square Garden, I actually thought I was standing. Nourished by Goffman, determined to fight stigma tooth and nail rather than internalize it, it was disheartening that with every passing year, my chances for love seemed to dwindle. When I was 28 years old, my tender Tante Miriam, Avrumi's mother, helped me get dressed for the very first time. 
Several hours later, cheeks blushing, eyes luminous, she confided, I never realized how attractive your body is. I told Uncle Moshe that I can envision a man wanting to marry you. My confidence boost was short-lived. What did it matter what Tanta Miriam could envision, what I could envision, if a man could not? Two years later, in 1982, Steven Spielberg's E.T. the Extraterrestrial was released. The theater lights dimmed, and soon I saw two elongated reptilian fingers rising ominously. They pulled down a branch, juxtaposed against a globe of light glowing in the night sky. Those fingers terrified me. They disgusted me. And based on the audience's collective gasp, I knew I wasn't alone. Then, magic. Gradually, the fingers became far more than tolerable. They were lovable, loving, life-giving. And it occurred to me that mine were, too. Within the year, I met and married my husband. I hope you enjoyed my excerpt from A Life Notwithstanding. Please join me next week when we will return to Geographically Yours and songs featuring New Jersey and other nearby states. Until then, I'm signing off for now with a song in my heart. <laughs>